the old world is ending, and we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the structural problems in our world and the real solutions that we have today to transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse into a collaborative and sustainable futuristic society that serves all life. You may think it's an impossible dream, but the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Zachary Marlowe, Matt Holton, and Amanda Smith. And together, when we can move past this economic absurdity to come together and actualize our collective potential to create something completely new, we are Moneyless Society. We've never been more connected or paradoxically separated as we are today. Our show is recording from two states in the U.S. on opposite ends and from Sydney, Australia. One of our hosts, Amanda, is sick with the virus that's brought us all together and torn us all apart. And our whole world rides in the grips of an ever-expanding cancer of globalized market dominance and the monoculture it enforces on the world. Outsourcing jobs to poor countries to save money on slavery or bomb and overtake them for resource extraction, reducing the vibrant diversity of our lands and cultures into a homogenous heap of concrete and brand logos like the pirate flags of transnational corporations, pitting us against each other to compete for menial jobs for their profits and our losses as we suffer together from a universal loss of humanity and biodiversity that threatens the whole wide world. Today, we're going to talk about this problem of globalization and the very simple, even obvious solution to think global and act local. Today's guest is the great Helena Norberg Hodge, founder of the organization Local Futures and a crusader who has worked for over 40 years as an activist, a best-selling author and filmmaker, ceaselessly devoted to equality, ecology, and overall to a great shift toward decentralization or localization. So Helena, um, I, I kind of like to start things off simply sometimes and give people a broad frame of reference. I know this is something that you've uh, maybe talked the wheels off of through your long life and career, but what does uh, localization mean to you? Well, <laughs> it means that we need to turn in exactly the opposite direction of globalization. And so it's quite important to understand that this is a process of moving away from a globalized economic system that started with force, it started with slavery, genocide, enclosures. From the beginning, that global economic system was about driving people away from the land, from their own resources, from their ability to produce a range of products for their own needs. And, you know, this started quite a while ago, and it, it built up a structure that allowed global traders, globally active players, to amass more and more wealth. Um, and that division between later on having, first of all, enslaved people on one side of the world, and then having a process of industrialization on the other side of the world, allowed for this ideal setup where you could produce at a very low price and sell at a nice high price. So from my point of view, it's extremely important that we understand the structural side of this and understand that we must move towards localizing. We must shorten the distances between production and consumption. That's one definition, but it's not an absolute. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's not about people suddenly eating only local food. You know, I often say if they did, if they're only eating locally, they'd be eating tobacco or oil or, or soya beans only. So 
It's a process of diversifying and creating a much greater balance between having most of your basic needs met from closer to where you live and trade being reduced to what it was for tens of thousands of years where the things that were imported were special and desirable, but they were not your everyday food and your basic need. So localization is about rebuilding those local economic systems that would allow people to not only produce what they need, but what I, I really love to encourage people to think about is that we have never had any region, any country focus on diversification for their own needs instead of focusing on monoculture for export. So fundamental to the shift is that we start working with the diversity of the living world. It's essentially a necessary step to come back to realizing that the economy, the, the, the mother of what provides for our needs is the earth. And the earth is diverse. Everything that lives is diverse. So it's about coming back to working with and rebuilding and renewing diversity. Um, and that's never happened. Indigenous people did have a range of products for their own needs, but they didn't focus on, oh, how can we increase the diversity here? They didn't need to. There was plenty of space. There weren't very many people. On a crowded planet, we now need to focus on this diversification. And it's happening in the local food movement, small, steps around the world. Anyway, very long answer because it's a complex process. It's a big, it's a big issue. And it's interesting. I'm thinking about uh, the essence of globalization is, you know, even though it's this incredibly complicated process, it's all about reduction. It's all about the reduction of biodiversity. You know, like uh, there are so many different species of uh, rice or strains of rice that were grown, you know, even just in a country like India, hundreds, you know, hundreds of different varieties of rice. You go to the grocery store today, and I'm sure this is a global phenomenon, you're eating the same species of food, you're eating the same identical thing as if it's been mass produced. And it's exactly the same way with culture, with cultures, you know, it's, it's extremely depressing to me, beyond depressing, it's doomed to me to go onto the other side of a country or the other side of a world to go to another country, to seek another culture and to see they're wearing the same uh, mass produced objects that are reflective of the same infinitely reductive monoculture worldwide. And that itself is is a, a very scary thing, and it's not something to be desired at all. There's nothing convenient about that. I'm so glad that you say that as a young person, because that is absolutely true, especially for us oldies who were able to travel to a world <laughs> golden oldies. We were able to actually experience and to see cultural diversity, and that, of course, is. For me, I found it fascinating when I was young and I loved learning languages. And so I learned to speak quite a lot of languages and, and saw, you know, some of that diversity. Later on, when I came to Ladakh and, and then to Bhutan, I realized that in many of the places where I thought I had seen traditional culture, I was actually seeing a sort of a pale imitation because they had been colonized. And so that had so uh, change their cultural vitality, their self-reliance, their self-respect. So 
thrilled that you realize the importance of cultural diversity. And, you know, I hope we'll talk also about how that has at a deep level to do with genuine individualism. At a fundamental level, this is also about allowing people to be themselves and to feel good about who they are. And it's, it's very paradoxical to me that we believe that this sort of American dream consumer culture that's being promoted across the world is marketed as you know, a champion of individualism, but it actually creates in young people a terrible fear of not conforming to what is a global monoculture, and it's disastrous. It's the decimator of individualism. It, it makes people conform completely because they can't, they don't feel like they can trust their own authentic self because everybody else is doing things the same way and people get this gnawing anxiety. They feel like, like uh, going to Guatemala and seeing, this is sort of a jump, but going to Guatemala and I went there specifically to try to connect with an older culture to uh, a, a more robust and um, original culture, a culture with more primacy. And I was heartbroken to see uh, the same brand logos, the same objects, the same mass produced crap. And to see that these people were cut off from their original, uh, the, all of the things that were, that allowed them to adapt to their environment, that they didn't know that I, I talked to this, uh, activist, this organizer who was working with people in local villages who were completely cut off from their food system and from their own culture, from their own ability to work the land that they were eating the fried chicken, just like anybody else. And he had to teach them their own cultural heritage. And that to me is, is, is a tragedy is, a, is an enormous tragedy. So localization, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, I think you said this in, a, in an, an interview, and I'm sure you've said it before, but it's, it's reconnecting with our true self. It's reconnecting with who we are. It's like so many people, you know, they're wearing Nike sweatshirt and the Nike hat and all that stuff. And we need to take, strip all that off to see who we really are. Because, you know, like you see lines of people in business suits and the politicians that are supposed to represent us, they're all wearing the same outfits. They're all wearing the same clothing. And it's, it's to, it's to, to, uh, hide their true humanness, their true individuality. Yeah, and I don't know if you've uh, heard me talk about this. You know, I, I, I had my eyes open to this at a very deep level when I arrived in this remote part of the world called Ladakh, which also used to be called Little Tibet. It's the westernmost part of the Tibetan plateau, and it was part of Tibet that had belonged to India since the 1840s. But when the Chinese came into central Tibet, the Indians guarded all the borders. No one was allowed to go there. It was a very sensitive border area. Um, and that was from roughly from the 1940s. So in the sort of modern era, Ladakh had not been affected by the modern economy. There hadn't been tourists. There hadn't been, you know, the sort of influx of consumer items. And I happened to arrive there. I was a linguist. I learned languages very quickly. And I was asked to go out as part of a film team. And I just totally fell in love with these people. So instead of staying for six weeks, which was the plan, when the filming was finished, I stayed on. I started working on the language. And I, I learned to speak it fluently very quickly. And I had this remarkable privilege and it became a bit of a burden also because it's been quite a lonely sort of battle of experiencing people who were so just 
so deeply self-respecting that there was no need to prove that you were important. There was no need to prove that you were better than others at running or reading or that you were more beautiful than what you actually looked like. I met people who were so deeply equanimous and and settled in themselves that the self wasn't an issue. And a people who were so, as I came to discover over the years, I ended up working with the local people and I'm now, I'm now speaking from a perspective of 45 years. But I saw, some of these things took me a while to realize, but I saw that part of this deep self-respect, of course, meant that you were so tolerant of difference. You, you weren't threatened by difference. And I actually, you know, it took lessons for me to realize that that tolerance was also born of living in a more localized, place-based economic system where people depended on each other. So when there could be a potential source of conflict, people tended to be remarkably forgiving and, and tolerant because as they explained to me when I would say, why are you not insisting, you know, that you should have your fair share of wood? You know, this isn't fair, you know, Sonam took more than he should have taken. Then they say, oh, you know, we have to live together. So that was one of the many pieces of explaining to me how important it is to rebuild more localized economic systems. Part of that piece was also that in those more land-based local economies, what we would call indigenous cultures, it really was a need to keep a larger, more extended family connected and supporting each other. It was a need to also maintain a deep relationship with neighbors beyond the blood family. So I found that the separation between family and community was a permeable membrane, a very relaxed, uh, easygoing, permeable membrane. And I found that in that extended family and community-based way of life, every mother had about 10 live-in caretakers for every child. And I've come to see that as probably the most important single building block of giving children such a deep sense of security. There was just no one getting irritated or tired if the child was ill or a bit uh, misbehaving a bit. There was just always, the baby, first of all, was always on somebody's body, not put in a box somewhere in a corner and not, not in a dark room on its own. Uh, which I even remember as a child, you know, even seven or eight. I always wanted to have a bit of a crack in the door and see some light coming through. I didn't want to be put in a room, a dark room on my own. So just so many things that have happened through the need of being productive and functioning in a modern industrial globalized economy has distorted and perverted our social relationships in ways I could go on about forever. <laughs> yes, I think Matthew wants to say something. Yeah, so no, everything you're saying is really interesting and I, and I love it a lot. And I was I was reading actually a little bit about Ladakh uh, before you came on the show here, because I was curious, um, 
you know, it's, it's cultures like that, I find I find interesting. But you know, when every when everybody gets along so well and works together so well, and then all of a sudden, that you know, there's uh, some influx of quote unquote progress, and then everything starts to, uh, for less of a better term, you go to go to crap, or, <laughs> right? Um, and, and so it, it makes me kind of wonder why sometimes exactly what the mechanism is. And also, I just kind of wanted to explore a couple different things too. Um, I mean, when you, ha- when you have an isolated region like that, um, I mean, it must be interesting. It sounds like that was probably a place that like probably didn't have any like televisions, um, like really contact with the outside. Uh, internet didn't exist back in 1962. So there wasn't any, uh, you know, multimedia through the internet like you have it today. Uh, I'd imagine that not very many people had televisions, if anybody, uh, when, you, when you first went out there. Would I be incorrect in assuming that? No, no, absolutely. No television, no internet, <laughs> no, no telephones. Right. Right? And, I, and I'm curious too, what was, what was the, um, I mean, it sounds like this is a place where a lot of people were really just kind of, they shared a solidarity and purpose of essentially just surviving as a community in this, in this rather harsh environment, because I mean, they're, they're way up there. This is a dry, cold place for most of the year. And it seems like their, their town survived on glacial runoff for the most part. Right. And then they grew crops off of this glacial runoff and, um, and it sounds like it's a pretty, pretty difficult area to survive if you don't have a community, right? And if you don't have this kind of solidarity. Uh, would I be incorrect in assuming that? No, no, it's true. But keep in mind, I also worked in Bhutan, and that environment wasn't nearly as harsh. Very green valleys and you know, lots of trees. And, and yet there, the pattern and the way of life was very, very similar. And yeah. So the harsh environment in Ladakh, I think, actually led to a culture that was even more balanced in the sense that the status of women was higher than it was in Bhutan. And it seems, and this was partly because they they had what they call polyandry. They actually shared uh, several brothers would have one wife, which immediately when you look at that, it sounds like, oh, that would be hard on women. It wasn't actually. Um, generally, women had a very strong position. And yeah, so there, were, there are many aspects to it. But I think the key aspect that I even saw examples of was living in Spain in the 80s in a remote area of Spain, which we, my husband and I, having lived in Ladakh and Bhutan, found it very difficult to go back to live in the normal Western ways. We chose one of the most remote undeveloped parts of Europe, and that was this remote part of Spain. And there we're talking about Muslim invasions, the Inquisition, you know, women in black, and in many ways, nothing like the ebullience and joy, and you know, that we saw in Ladakh and uh, Bhutan, but still many of the aspects of a life closer to nature, more extended family, much more intergenerational connection, much greater self-reliance, even in the 80s, was there to be seen. And literally, in the 80s, came essentially what we now call globalization, which is a new incarnation of this colonial, very racist, misogynist, exploitative system that came in and they came in with, among other things, 
toy shops that both in Tibet and in Ladakh had Rambos with machine guns for the boys and Barbie dolls for the girls. So this polarization of gender, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'd like to uh, also define the globalization. I think a lot of what we talk about in the same vein is also commoditization, too. Uh, essentially, because they're taking things that, like like you were saying, like most of the necessities of life, they were made by the by themselves, by the community. They were shared within the community, uh, you know. And so nobody, it doesn't sound like anybody had to trade or barter for food, right? For a meal or for a home or for any really necessities, really anything that they needed to live right but but there were more more important things more more likely to is that right sorry go ahead so it depends what you mean by barter because certainly that did happen quite a lot that there were some families that had more cheese and other people had animals vegetables fruit and there was a greater much greater self-reliance as late as the sort of mid 80s and we saw the, uh, the changes that came with globalization. And I think I should explain, you know, for the listener that globalization in this new incarnation took off with much more vigor and power in the mid eighties. And this was now through more and more trade treaties, both bilateral and multilateral that were imposing on countries, absolutely imposing, we call it forced trade, by blackmailing governments into saying, if you don't go along with this, you're going to be left behind. And it's essentially about big business bullying national governments. It wasn't about trade between countries. So it's really important to understand that. Um, yeah. Well, they can say they can say we're bringing trade to them. We're bringing you know freedom, but really, it's they're bringing extraction. They're bringing a very unequal exchange. And I think that's uh, something I've been really focusing on lately is just the, the nature of exchange and trade in itself and how trade in all forms uh, will eventually lead to uh, that consolidation of power, the unequal exchange that I don't think that, uh, especially in today's economies, especially in economies of scale, that trade can exist in a truly fair exchange. You know, it just can't. It, it's always going to consolidate power. It sounds like they kind of pulled it off to a large degree in the town that, uh, you know, Helena's talking here in Ladakh there, right? But there's, but it's also like, I kind of wanted to point out that the commoditization, it was, the trade was limited to a good deal. And there was also just a very kind of communal sharing aspect, I think, going on too, kind of, right? I think that it's really important that we distinguish between trade or barter at a regional level, at a scale where people see their interdependence with others. So even within the region of this Western part of Tibet, there was a fair amount of trade and barter where in some areas they had more animals, they had more cheese and butter and milk and, and meat product. Other parts were growing more grains and some fruit and so on. So there was definitely trade there. The, the issue is that going back to the, with the help of Christianity, this imposition from Europe across the world. And there you're talking about commodities. Another way to talk about it is the imposition of doing monoculture for export for these traders. That was the key that then destroyed the environmental balance and made people, you know, sort of puppets and victims enslaved in a system that then artificially 
was able to go around the world and offer products at an artificially low price. So it's very much to do with this concentration of power at the global level and the trade that goes via them. That's the trade and the barter that is toxic and disastrous, really from the beginning, from going back sort of 500 years in many places. Interesting. And, and so what you're saying is essentially like, is that what happened? They came in and they did a lot of kind of mono monoculture, monocropping instead of they with through the incentives that they provided with these new trade agreements and, you know, progress and industrialization and whatnot. They kind of ended up going to these monocrop cultures and more commoditization of the crops. Yes. But again, remember this started also already with slavery and genocide. So these slaves were put onto cotton plantations, coffee plantations. And so this, uh, you know, structural problem of producing larger and larger monocultures for export. And people haven't looked at this globally, so they haven't understood that this is going on around the world. So it's going in both export and import. So, and, and the traders in the meanwhile, every time the same product is being imported and exported, they make money. Whereas if you have diversified production and that's used for home needs, you know, first of all, nationally, regionally, locally, multinationals wouldn't make any money. So again, it's the multinational global nature of the traders. So at the later stage in the 80s, as this started taking off more, and first of all, it was sort of reified as a process after the Second World War, when the Bretton Woods institutions were set up, World Bank, IMF, and the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Sadly, many people who were critical of the World Bank somehow didn't pay attention to this process of trade treaties. This is one of the problems we have, you know, it's a movable feast. It's not a nice big building that you can target you know, in Washington. And there was a lot of ignorance about it because people would look at it from only a national perspective. So when labor unions, for instance, in America would complain about factories moving to India or China, they'd be told you're just selfish. You know, this is about raising the level of, you know, essentially you, you, you are preventing us from reducing poverty on the other side of the world. And that's still the propaganda that's put out there. And it's, it's not true. Yeah. Well, it's absolutely false. I mean, it's the creator of poverty. And so many people will say, oh, capitalism lifted these countries out of poverty. And it's like they created the conditions of poverty. Exactly. They, and they enforce this. It, it, you know, it's like saying, oh, these people, they live on a dollar a day and we raise them up to a dollar 90 or whatever, or whatever the numbers that they use to try to justify this. It's like they didn't need your dollars at all. You forced your dollars onto them. You know, you took people who lived in, you know, not, I wouldn't say necessarily abundant conditions, but they lived in equitable conditions or fair conditions. They had, they were able to meet their needs locally. They were able to meet their needs and thrive as a community, really thrive, you know, to live full lives, not to just skate by, not to just skirt by on the minimum amount of, of calories that they can get in their belly because they're limited by the amount of, of currency that's totally controlled. And, you know, I was reading about these structural adjustment policies that the IMF and institutions like that will enforce on countries like this, you know, countries in the third world, countries that have resources that they want, you know, they'll they'll um, they'll bully them into accepting these loans and then it, and then into using their currency that they you know then devalue and crank up the inflation rates to just like 20, 30, 40 percent, 
it's extortion on a crazy level. And it, it's a system of slavery with chains that we can't see, you know, and conditions that somebody can even can be actively enslaving them and say, we're increasing the quality of their life. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. And also remember that this is going on within the industrialized world as well. So, you know, I'd go back to Sweden, which, you know, by all sort of modern standards look like a great success. And coming back from Ladakh and Bhutan, I'd see, you know, these people who were so isolated, so lonely, so depressed, driven away from the land. Key to all of this is to look at what's happened to food systems and food production. And remember, you know, the farming and the work, working the land was also about fiber and building materials and the management of water. So it's, it's more than just producing what we eat. But that relationship to the land being completely cut off from that and now dependent on giant institutions that you don't even know the name of, as you in the city are cut off from family, cut off from community, I, it was a disaster already in the 70s in Sweden, it was obvious. Uh, I was reading about um, uh, the conditions of uh, uh, the coal industry in uh, rural Appalachia. And it's interesting, you know, you're talking about how it, this, is a, this is not a phenomenon that's resigned to the third world, that it happens in America, it happens in the West, it happens in Europe. I was reading this great book called uh, Power and Powerlessness. And he, there was, he was talking about colonialism in America, that this guy was going around Appalachia in the coal regions that were so blighted and so poor and so isolated and, and exactly everything you said, lonely and sick and hurt and just deprived. And the, the number one question that people would ask him as somebody from the outside world was, do you know who owns this land? And if they know how bad it is, that they didn't even know who owned the land, that it's an, it's a completely absentee a slave master whipping them with an, uh, with, you know, an, an economic system, a completely abstract thing that they then are told is their, is their yeah. freedom, is their wings. It's blasphemous. And you see, then also what's so scary is that people like that are also bombarded then with the sort of shock jocks who tell them that the enemy is the other, you know, rather than understanding that this corporate system is really the enemy of life. It's the enemy of all of us as a system. But then instead, what happens is you blame the other and you blame the immigrant, you blame the people of color, or you might blame the government. And that often leads to this idea, we want laissez-faire. We want, you know, we, people respond to the political leaders who will get up and say, we're gonna grow the economy for you. We're gonna make your country great again. Forget about all this left stuff of looking after people and and looking after the forests and so we're going to be looking after you we're going to grow the economy we don't want any of this government interference it pushes them to more gets the oppressed people the slaves to call for more slavery in the form of more privatization more corporate control more corporate power it's 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 ludicrous so i, I it cracks me up inside to just to think about it to try to zoom out and see the whole picture so i i kind of want to ask what do you, what are what are the solutions you know and what is what what is a transition to uh, this sort of uh, lo form of localization and and th that you've called uh, the, an economy of happiness what does an economy of happiness look like well again I just want to stress that I think it's really important that people understand the dominant system better and I actually believe that you know if people would really understand how it operates they would see 
the enormous opportunity of building huge alliances across rich and poor, across left and right, across climate activists and people concerned about poverty, race issues, fundamentalism. It's just like once you understand this system, you also don't have to, or you can't actually, it becomes very difficult to feel just this anger towards Bill Gates or towards Amazon or Monsanto, because once you understand that this changed banking and we have this fake money being traded, then for me, you know, the passion is how can we wake people up to that? So that part of what we need to do is helping people to understand that system, but once you do understand it, you also see how vitally important it is to start rebuilding from the bottom up the more localized relationships. And you see very clearly that if we can help build stronger local food economies worldwide, we have taken the biggest step we possibly could if we want systemic solutions. So I feel really privileged from you know that having had those experiences, opening my eyes to that and having encouraged around the world that building of local food economies, it's been hard, it's been so frustrating, it's been very difficult because neither the farmers nor the environmentalists nor the organic people generally, because they weren't looking at this economic systemic side of it, they would just not use the language of local, they wouldn't encourage this smaller scale, more diversified production, which is essential for the land, for reducing climate emissions, reducing plastic, and rebuilding a deeper, real embodied connections to the land. So even when it happens from city to country, when people start being in touch with the farm on which they depend and maybe go out for harvest, when they learn about the joy of also being more connected to the soil, to the seeds. There's this beautiful healing that happens. So localization, you know, particularly when you look at the local food movement, is this amazing win-win-win healing. You know, it really has healed torture victims, prisoners, juvenile delinquents. And it's healing in a way that I think I can say goes beyond even the incredible spiritual joy of being connected to nature, to wilderness. So I have many, many friends and colleagues who've been encouraging that deep nature connection. And for me, wilderness is my church. I don't feel as spiritually alive and awakened when I'm in the garden as I do when I'm out in, in more wild, unspoiled nature. But I think what happens with these local food initiatives is that people are coming together and they engage in something that rebuilds and renews practical skills. They become part of a productive system that they can actually see and ideally taste and enjoy also the fruit of their labors. Very often the farmers, where we've helped to start farmers markets, they'll say that it's just been such a joy to hear from the consumers. And we've had the experience in many countries of seeing how in the farmers markets, you often will have quite conservative farmers who would have voted for the chemicals, for the growth that was actually indebting them and making 
you know, essentially a very clear trajectory of destroying farmers to replace them with bigger and bigger and bigger monocultures using more and more machinery, more and more fossil fuels, more and more chemicals, etc. But they've been trained into believing that. And very often the farmers markets have been started by women, sometimes their wives who were seeing how depressed and sometimes suicidal their husbands were. But what they found when they then get to hear from the consumers who love their product and they suddenly find they can sell everything. Doesn't matter how big or small, few blemishes. They're not in this machine where it had to be standard product and they were pressured to grow, you know, larger and larger quantities of one thing, which is completely unnatural in it already. But then that one thing, whether bananas or apples or carrots, was supposed to be the same size, you know, completely unnatural. It's just it's just full of water and has no yeah. nutrients in yeah. it, and the soil is so stripped. And I, w I wanted to make a point there. And and you were talking about how people they can't understand this complex issues. And it's 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 ironic that the term for that is localized perception, that people are bottlenecked in a localized understanding where they only see the world through this very small lens of what is immediately right before them, which is ironically kind of the solution to starting that connective process that we are so connected. There is so much going on. There are so many nodes that everybody on earth right now, more than they've ever been right now is, you know, a coal miner in Kentucky is connected to, uh, you know, a, a stockbroker in China completely, directly, inarguably. No one can argue that anymore, that we are connected and things are so spread out and that there's no sense of, of being able to grasp on to any point, even your own person, even your, you know, in your own life and in your own world. You see, see here, the great paradox is that as people have been trapped, and remember, it started with force, and essentially, it's been this big system shifting people where people would say to me in Sweden and America, how could the Ladakis let their culture be so destroyed? And I'd have to explain, well, actually, you're doing the same thing. You're blind to the changes. They're happening gradually enough so you don't see how your culture is being more and more raped and pillaged and torn apart. So this, here we're talking about the need for humanity to move towards a way of life where we have some experiential knowledge of the world that we have an impact on. So whether it's the, the consumer and the farmer, whether it's the water and the trees, we actually need to come back to greater decentralization so that we can become more humble in the face of complexity and far more intelligent. And with the intelligence, as I say, also it grows humility because then we're more aware of that uniqueness of every one of those apples, every one of those persons, every one of those moments in life, every single thing that lives is constantly changing, is infinitely diverse, even from itself, changing from moment to moment. So once we've come in tune with that, we discover also a richness that comes from that. And of course, when that richness can be revitalized, you know, so in human beings, we're talking about coming close enough to each other that who we are becomes what you connect to. And you know that people appreciate you for who you are, not what you look like, not how big your car is, not your PhD, but you, you specific human being with your way of being, you're suddenly being seen and appreciated. Now that 
that is a huge gift that brings joy and 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 the genuine connection and love that we all look for so this is how at so many levels localization is the economics of happiness hey guys and girls i just want to stop in and say hi and express my regret for not having been a part of this week's episode especially since um, the food industry is one of my most passionate subjects when it comes to discussing how to build the transition to a post-scarcity world, but also on a smaller, more individual scale, how important food is to one's resiliency and daily quality of life. Now, on that note, the reason I wasn't present for this conversation is because I contracted COVID about two and a half weeks ago. Today, I feel very fortunate to be here, and I also feel like I know why I am. As I'm sure you've heard it said before, food is either medicine or poison. And I have been lucky enough to have access to healthy food, and thus healthy life choices, for many years now. And am very confident that I wouldn't be here today and I wouldn't have been able to fight off COVID had my body not already been so prepared. So I'm not saying an apple a day would keep COVID away, please don't take that literally. We don't need any more uh, horse swarmer stories. but. I am saying that without the knowledge of what kind of choices to make and without access to healthy food, obviously the world is suffering in systemic ways. It's a loaded statement, and I'm sure my colleagues have done a good job of unpacking it throughout this episode, so I'll leave it at that. But I will note this. There is perhaps no greater irony to be found than in the nonsensical logistics of our food industry. I mean, what good is it to eat it, the food, if it's poison? and create systemic health issues? And what good is it to cultivate the land if we're killing our ecosystems in the process? The world over is stripped and pillaged, drilled and exploited, all in the name of ending hunger. So they say, but in fact, it's all in the name of the bottom dollar. Otherwise, why not localization? Think about it, why can't you just go buy an apple from a local farmer at a local grocer? Because it's much more profitable to spend copious amounts of resources on growing, harvesting, preserving, and transporting that apple to you from halfway across the world. Never mind the toll it takes on indigenous peoples, the climate, or our health. Just as long as the corporate appetite gets satisfied. The fact our food industries market food to us should be all the proof we need that the for-profit agenda is what's at the center of these big food corporations. We need food. We're going to buy it and eat it. It doesn't need to be marketed to us, we just need to be able to access it. We can obsolete the destructiveness, the wastefulness, the scarcity that's engineered by today's corporate agendas, and above all, the hunger pandemic, if only we rub the propaganda from our eyes and realize we are nature, and the world around us is an extension of ourselves. Abundant health and happiness starts with a vital reconnection to the world around us, and that is precisely why the Mayalist Society advocates for a resource-based economy model. The marriage of technology with ecology, for purpose, not profit, is the solution to a myriad of societal issues. There's no legislation, there's no fiscal budget, there's no, sad to say, morality that's going to obsolete wastefulness, destructfulness, and inequality when it comes to food access. All of those things are inherent of a monetary slash for-profit socioeconomic model. So how do we move forward? How do we end hunger? 
we obsolete the system that's causing it. Thanks guys and gals for being here for another episode. We are so glad you're here and together we can get there. The new and better world, post-scarcity, abundance, health, happiness, all those things that we were told are silly dreams are going to be the next reality. Thanks to people like you. Be well. This great conversation with Helena Norberg-Hodge will be continued in part two, where we discuss the role of technology, dig deeper into the broader systemic and transformative shifts that need to accompany localization, which is just one of the main tiers of our broader holistic alternative vision, which we discuss at length in our episode, Five Steps to Save the World. Check it out and um, you know support us. Like, comment, share, all that stuff. Help uh, beat the algorithm and, and get these kind of conversations going. And all hell, get local with it. Talk about this stuff with your neighbors. Talk about it with people in your actual community. But uh, not too close. We're, we're still in a global pandemic. Take it easy. But take it. Take it.